0: Would you turn with me now in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, and I want to continue where we left off, beginning in verse 7, and I'm only going to go down a few verses. I don't want to make you go through the entire chapter. It gets a little patantic, but if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin to read this passage? Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Uh, It's speaking of the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, and it says, next to them... Repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mitzpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Yadin of Meronot, uh, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. And Uziel, the son of Harahiah, the one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Yediah, the son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, had made repairs next to him. Micaiah, the son of Harim and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, uh, repaired another section, the tower of the ovens. And Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next session with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun, the residence of Zanoah. They rebuilt it and and put its doors and bolts and bars in place, and they also repaired 500 yards of wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Micaiah, the son of Rehob, uh, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim. And he rebuilt it and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And the fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, the son of Kolhose, the ruler of the district of Mitzbah. And he rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. And he also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David, and so forth and so on. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect upon the message of this chapter that your Holy Spirit would speak your truth into our hearts and into our minds, that, Lord, you have a way of just extracting great treasures from places where we would not think otherwise to look. Let that be the case in our time in your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. According to the Bible, all human progress has come about the same way. God always begins with a man. That's not only true of the biblical history, it's true of history as a whole. In other words, you take a man like Henry Ford, had there not been a man like Henry Ford, probably the way in which automobiles and many other things are made would not have developed at least as early as they did. But when I say that God begins with a man, we have to understand how he begins. He, the very first thing he does is he mystifies the man. And what I mean by that, they ask a question, why are things the way they are? Ford had to ask a question, why can't we manufacture a car cheaply enough so everybody could buy it? And he created a concept called mass production that did not yet exist within industrialized world of the time. And the same way we have with the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is sitting here saying, wait a minute, we're God's chosen people. Uh, he's made all sorts of promises to us, and yet here we are, a people in great trouble and disgrace, to use his words. We are oppressed. We are not blessed. We are impoverished. We're not enriched. Everything is going the opposite direction that it should be going. But what really separates Nehemiah from most other people is that he doesn't just simply wonder why and then go on. You see, I think a lot of people run into certain walls, barriers, obstacles that they can't get past, and they kind of wonder why they're there, but then they just leave it there. They're kind of stuck. It's almost like, well, this isn't working out, so I'm just going to go do something else. But for some people, for reasons that I can't completely understand beyond simply saying it must be God, they get bit with a bug and they can't let go of it. Nehemiah couldn't drop it. He couldn't just sit there and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Oh, well, too bad, and then go on with his own life. We find him instead not just uh, wondering about it, but literally pondering about it, for four months as he fasts and he prays and he seeks God until finally God creates in him an answer. And that's something I think we should really think about in terms of what's going on in our own personal lives. That God may have brought you to a place where you feel like you're kind of stuck and you can't move forward, and the natural temptation is saying, well, I guess it's just not going to work out. must not be God's will, and we just go off and do something else. When in fact God may want you to actually persevere until you penetrate through that barrier and come out on the other side in many ways transformed in some significant way. Because what happened with Nehemiah after this waiting upon God, after becoming like a pit bull that won't let go of the rag and just clinging to it and pulling on it, finally God births an answer. And the answer is really simple. He gives, Nehemiah is given a message to deliver to the people in Jerusalem. And we read about that in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. So again, after four months of of digging and saying, why is this way? Suddenly God says, it's the way it is because of the following. The wall needs to be rebuilt. And it's an amazing decision on Nehemiah's part. He leaves the, the pleasure and the power and position of Persepolis, the, 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 the capital city of the Persians and the presence of the king of Persia and journeys all the way to Jerusalem, which literally is a forgotten backwater uh, that nobody really much cares about, to take on a project that would be full of opposition and nobody would appreciate it. But what changed for him was that God gave him the answer. God gave him the word. And so he has this message. And then that message moves him to move other people so that it actually becomes a movement where actually he talks to the people, he comes to Jerusalem, he says, this is the grace of God that was upon me. This is the material provision that the king has given me. And this is the faith that I have that caused me to move all this way to come here today and invest my life in this work. Their response is, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. So these things are really the dynamics where God starts with a man, he mystifies the man, and then he gives him a message to deliver. And out of that message, as it's shared, it touches and connects the hearts with other people, and it becomes a movement to accomplish some work. So that all that left now is, what is the method by which we're going to approach the project? And that's what chapter 3 is all about. Because Nehemiah obviously understood something. He would not succeed if he tried to build the wall all by himself. This was something that needed to involve many people, not just himself. And it's kind of an amazing dynamic when God begins to move this way because he starts with a man and then he draws many into a movement that actually becomes many people who become one because they're one in purpose, one in spirit, one in heart, one in mind. In other words, they become unified about doing one particular thing. And it's interesting because you see even the language changes. That in chapters 1 and 2, the most prominent personal pronoun is I and me. That is the personal pronoun in its singular, most singular form. Nehemiah is dealing with himself, he's talking about himself, he's wrestling with himself, he's reacting in himself. And then suddenly towards the end of chapter Uh, to and on into the book, it moves from I becomes us and me becomes we. And suddenly it moves from the singular to the plural that he's no longer a man who is striving in himself to know what God wants and responding in faith to what God wants, but he becomes a leader of a movement of people who share the same passion. And it's interesting to look also at really the diversity of those who were called together. I mean, it's, you have many different kinds of people, not just simply men and women working together, which was not common in that day and that time. But also we find many different backgrounds. You have rulers, you have priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, guards, merchants, farmers, laborers all these different kinds of career fields, if you will, and paths and social status positions are listed as working together. That the ruler and the priest and the laborer are all doing the same work together in unity. In other words... What they do is defined by the need, not by personal identity. They're responding to what needs to be done. And they come from a variety of places. In the chapter, it lists some eight different towns and villages so that most of the people who are working on the project aren't even from Jerusalem. But rather, they're laboring for what Jerusalem represents to them, not anything that they would necessarily personally or immediately benefit from. And we find, thirdly, that they fill such a variety of positions. There are 40 different work crews working on 45 separate parts of the wall and 10 separate gates. So that what we really see developing here is a lot of people who become mutually submitted to one another in order to create A greater project. It's kind of like the foundation of our American democracy. We say e pluribus unum, which Latin means out of many comes one. And one in the sense that there's such diversity amongst them, but they are all united in accomplishing the same goal. And what that requires is for me to realize that the mission that I'm called to fulfill is greater than me. The mission becomes greater than me. Now, it's hard for people to readily recognize it, but when we operate within the mission being greater than me, we enter into the realm of greatest personal happiness and fulfillment because you were created to live for something bigger than you. You were created by God in His image that you might glorify His image and that you might let Him become the greater purpose of your life. And that also means that we begin to take on the work that God has given for us to do. So the idea that the mission is greater than me is really the crux of a fulfilled and happy life. That I'm doing something that isn't just a fulfillment of my own short-term desires, pleasures, and passions, but I'm doing something that has a significant, even eternal impact. One of the things that we see is that this is a pattern that's developed from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. In other words, even when we begin with the first man, with Adam, God says in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 27, that God created man in his own image and said to him, be fruitful and increase in number. In other words, you and I are created to be productive and even talking about literally populating the earth. God's goal is that the number of people that populated the earth would increase, not decrease. He wasn't seeking to develop a comfortable environment. Well, hey, I, I, I don't have to deal with anybody else. Really populate the earth. Increase is something that God is good with. And even when he calls Abraham, he doesn't say to Abraham, look, I know you want a kid, I'm going to give you a kid, and you can be a happy family. He says, no, I have a greater purpose in this. I, he says, I will greatly increase your numbers. You will be the father of many. And we see the same thing with Noah. Noah set out to repopulate the earth. Moses led a large nation that would become ever greater. Same way with David or or Jesus or Peter or Paul. God is in the business of growth, not death. God is in the idea of increase, not decrease. And I think that's where we sometimes miss the whole point. Because even when we talk about the church there's a, a whole feeling that really a church sh- doesn't need to grow, it's not significant. But what I find is the church that doesn't grow is a church that also is beginning to die. I find people are surprised many times when you tell them that the first church that existed on the planet on the day of Pentecost was a megachurch. 3,000 people got saved in one day. And I don't read any place where it's saying, no, this isn't good. Some of you are going to have to leave. You know, we're the chosen frozen, we're the heroic hundred, and that's what we should stay. No, the idea is that we would multiply. That's the idea that when we get infected with God through Jesus Christ, sending His Holy Spirit into our hearts, that we would share the disease of eternal life, that we begin to infect the world, that we would touch them with what has touched us. And this is something that we see in Old and New Testament was the idea that God was in the idea of increasing. The problem is, when I go back to God always starting a man, is that the objective is not simply to exalt the man. Many times we want to see growth, we want to see increase so that we as individuals can be glorified and honored and say, look how marvelous we are. The proof of our significance and our value is the number of people that we're surrounded by. It's almost like people saying, I have 962 people who I friended on Facebook. And really it's kind of a misstatement because none of them are probably any of your friends. You know, it doesn't really mean anything in the bigger scheme of things. But we like that idea of just holding up those numbers. How many Twitter followers do I have? How many, you know, we, it's silliness when it's all said and done because the reality is our impact upon people is really limited really to a much smaller number. But the idea is that we want our lives to multiply in a meaningful way one that doesn't just simply exalt the individual, but really unifies the many so that it might accomplish what God wants. Jesus expressed this in John 17, 11, when he said that his prayer was that they may be one as we are one, that as we look at the body of Christ, we might experience the same kind of unity amongst ourselves that Jesus had with the Father. We don't often think about Jesus being in fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit but literally, that's what the Scripture talks, that God is not a monad. He simply exists in one unit by himself. God has from eternity had fellowship with himself through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that fellowship is so sweet that God said, let's create man in our image so that man can also share in our fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in turn, they learn to ha- imitate God by having fellowship one with another. That's why central to the idea of the very Godhead is the connectivity of God existing in community. And for us to be living in a way that reflects the image of God, it means that we are also living in that kind of spiritual community with God's people who are also His image bearers. And we see that being fulfilled in the foundation of the early church. In fact, the very first church we talked about in Acts 2.44, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And every day they continued to meet together. And what happened, he says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They had everything in common, literally the word koinonia. There was this this idea of sharing and doing life together. That's the essence of that statement, that as a reflection of doing life with God, they started doing life together as followers of God. And that's why Paul even instructs the church in, in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united In mind and thought. Or he says to the Philippians, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So as I said, what we see is a, a consistent statement and pattern that Christians are supposed to live in a kind of a community relationship that enables them to, in a very real, functional, measurable way, do life together as followers of Christ. Now, if what I've just said hasn't convinced you, let me beat you to death with passages that prove my point. For example, if you ever go and look up in the Bible what we call the one another passages in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, it's, it's pretty pedantic, but it's kind of powerful in a way. Because for example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Then he goes on, honor one another. In chapter, verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Chapter 13, 8 is one of my favorite New Testament passages. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. In fact, 10 times we're commanded in the New Testament to love one another. In Romans 14, 13, stop passing judgment on one another. 15, 7, he says, accept one another. 15, 14, instruct one another. 16, 16, greet one another. 11 times we're told to greet one another. In Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Ephesians 4, 2, be patient, bearing with one another. In chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as Christ in, in Christ God forgave you, Ephesians five nineteen, speak to one another. Five twenty one, submit to one another. Colossians three sixteen, teach and admonish one another. First Thessalonians five eleven, build up one another. Three more times we're told to do the same. Hebrews ten twenty four, spur one another on towards love and good needs, good deeds. Excuse me, James four eleven, do not slander one another. 1 Peter 3.8, live in harmony with one another. 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another. Chapter 5, verse 5, live with humility towards one another. And of course, 1 John 1.7, have fellowship with one another. And again, that word fellowship is this word koinonia. Share your lives together. Now, I understand why that doesn't get a lot of people excited because some people are harder to share your life with. In fact, who are those people? Those are the people you get to know well. If I only know you superficially, it's wonderful. We have no trouble getting along. I say hi, goodbye, and I'm on my way. But if I'm going to do life with you, I'm going to discover sides of you that I hadn't ever known. Now, in my case, you'll just find beauty and goodness. You won't see any bad stuff. But, but in your case, you know... <laughs> But isn't that the reality? I, I remember when I used to go on the early days of doing mission trips. I remember me and two other guys went to India for three weeks. And let me tell you, I discovered a whole other side of these fellas. If it hadn't been my, for my sinless perfection, we wouldn't have made it. <laughs> but it was really interesting when you you're not eating well and you're hot and you're suffering from all sorts of biological after-effects of eating poisoned food. I mean, it's an interesting dynamic that you see a side and sometimes the insides of other people that you didn't know were there. And at that moment, the, the idea of just simply saying, I'm gonna, we're going to love each other, we're going to support each other, when people are cranky and irritable and not really behaving well, that's when you realize that that's how fellowship happens. It's sharing in our lives together, even when our lives are not being fun. So that what becomes overwhelmingly clear, and I hope to overemphasize, is two simple truths, I think. That the first thing is that God doesn't favor one person over another. There are no super saints. There are no religious loyalty, royalty. There's no Christian celebrities. Those are all fantasies. At the end of the day, we're all the same. In fact, Job said from God's perspective, he says, God shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of God's hands. Every one of us are created by God for God to be reflectors of His image. So that there's no difference amongst us. Those of you who depreciate your value because you're not somebody rich and important and influential are believing something that's not true. Those of you who think you're better than other people because you have some things that they don't, that's a lie as well. The truth of the matter is in God's eyes we're all the same and in God's eyes we're all valuable. We're all irreplaceable. But secondly... Therefore, there are no lone rangers in the body of Christ either. Christians are meant, as I said before, to do life together. Christians are not meant to do life alone. And that's interesting because we live in an age where increasingly people are becoming more isolated. You know, technology, digital technology has not brought us closer. It's just given us more grit on each other. But we really aren't closer. You cannot, as much as I love things like FaceTime so that I can get on FaceTime with my grandkids and communicate with them, it is not the same as being in relationship with them. It's not the same. It's not the same as doing life with them. Doing life requires real-time contact with other people. And sending a kiss over the phone is not the same as hugging someone and actually having them in your presence. And so we need to understand that this age that we live in that seems to promise us this ability to bridge gaps will not bridge any gaps as long as they're digitally defined. What really creates relationship is people being in proximity with other people. Well, one of my adages in life is that people in proximity produce problems And that's why we would prefer to keep everybody at a safe distance. But let me tell you, as a Christian, you will not continue to grow. You'll become spiritually stuck in a place of less productivity than God had intended for you if you refuse to allow yourself to be meaningfully connected with other people in a way that you can actually do life together. I get it. That's threatening to some people. Because all of us have those experiences where we got close and we got hurt. You're not alone. But also what we need to recognize is when you got hurt, God had a plan to use that hurt to help you grow in ways that you would never have imagined. But let me shift the focus just a minute and try to bring it back afterwards. You see, when, when a person, like a Christian, comes to a church everyone is looking for something. And I've really reduced it down to three different things that people are looking for. The first and most common thing I hear from people is I want to be part of a community of believers. I want to be part of a community that I belong to. And the ideal is if I can find my seven best friends, that's where I'm going to go to church. Uh, Now, I don't necessarily think that's bad, But I think it has some problems if that's our primary motivator for why we become part of anything. Because the problem is is we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, not followers of our best friends. And the problem is that we may tolerate things that we shouldn't because that's where our best friends are instead of doing those things that we know are right and good. So just making that choice means that we're really not committing to community outside of our seven best friends The secondly i find that people come to a church looking for a cause to believe in Uh, it's interesting to me over the years i've seen that there are many people who the first thing they want to know is what is your position on pro-life Pro marriage, pro family, pro, pro homeschool, political activism. Uh, what do you think about generational differences? What do you think about music and your music preferences, and what about the preaching style? And on and on it goes. This whole list of things that, as if they're going through, you know, Fred Meyer or 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 Albertsons or Safeway, and they're kind of deciding, you know, do I get the 12 ounce can or the 10 ounce can? Do I want my olives sliced, diced? or whatever, you know, we have this idea that we just kind of shop around for those things and create our own little picnic basket of Christianity. And the problem is, is that oftentimes God will shift the focus of a church. And when that happens, it's like, okay, I'm out of here. They're apostate. But what is the right motivation? It's not to have a community to belong to. It's not to have a cause to believe in. It's to find Christ to bow down to. You see, the central purpose of church is to bring people together in a way that causes them to bow down to Christ in a more meaningful way. A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, Pursuit of God, explained it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ Are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, what Tozer was reacting to was the the crusade basically saying, We just need to be unified. We need to be on the same page. Let's all get together. Let's all work for the same thing, as if unity was an end in itself. So that if everybody is unified, isn't that wonderful? But let me tell you something, friends. The Nazis were unified. (laughs) They were very unified. The Cambodians under Pol Pot were unified. The Chinese under Mao were unified. The Russians under Stalin were unified. But... (laughs) He was responsible for over 30 million people's death. Hitler was responsible for maybe 16 million people's death. Pol Pot for at least 4 million people's death. I mean, we can look at that. Mao Zedong, we aren't even sure how many people perished under his despotism. They had unity, but unity around the wrong thing become the worst evil in fact, God even warned about that, didn't He, in the Tower of Babel when He said in Genesis 11:6, 6, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing will be impossible to them. Unity is a powerful thing. It can be used for great good or it can be used for great harm. So how do we make sure that we have a unity that is healthy and is glorifying to God and is good for everybody involved? It begins by every person determining in their heart, I want to live a life that's bowed down to Christ. I want my life to be in tune with Jesus. One of the things that's beautiful about watching somebody play the harp is, how many strings are there on a a large harp? Anybody know? Anybody happen to know that piece of trivia? I'll have to go home and look that up. That kind of stuff that I obsess on, I'm sorry. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And you realize that every string is different. they are different gauges. they are even different tones. And you tune all of them, but in the end, they have this incredible harmonious sound together. And that's the way the body of Christ is. It's many different strings, and each of us is being tuned, but we're being tuned to what God specifically has called us to do. And if we're submitted in fullness to what He wants us to be tuned to, there is a harmony that flows within the church. So that when Paul says it, and Jesus even says it, about being in agreement with one another, the word that's used in the New Testament is the word symphoneo. It's where we get our word symphony. It literally means sum, same sound, so that there's a harmoniousness that flows out of the church. But where is that harmony found? It's not found in me looking at your life and deciding where I fit in the equation. It's rather me looking to Christ, focusing on Him, and saying to Him, Lord, I bow down before You. I submit my life fully to You. Your will be done in my life. And suddenly, we find that we are connected in a community. We belong in a community of other people who are also vitally connected together. And in that, we discover what our cause is. That's the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wrestled with God until he had peace about a thing that troubled him and mystified him. And suddenly, as he's struggling with that, God gives him this message and by faith, he leaves the pleasures of Persia and everything that was there to go to Jerusalem to deliver this message. I know how the disgrace and the troubles can be removed by building this wall. And other people who attuned to that same fork said, Yes, let us build and suddenly a movement took place, not governed by some guy who was riding over them by you must and you have to and you better, but rather by the Spirit of God speaking to each heart and bringing them into a perfect unity. That's how God wants His church to work. He wants you to be in this church, not because your best friends are here, not because, yeah, they do those reach initiatives and things like that, and I'm really behind that, I'm not dissing on that stuff, but let's not get that cart in front of the horse. We need to be here because this is where God has called me to be. Let me tell you, some of you know our story. I haven't told it in a while, but do you know why I'm in Spokane? Because God told me this was His will for my family. In fact, I told my wife before He told me. But I remember it. I'm serving as associate pastor on a large church, and, and things are good. The pay's good, the benefits are great. Just bought a brand new house. I'm living large. And I get this troubling phone call from these people in Spokane. Pat, come, what? No, it's not God's will. They call back oh, hi, no, 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 hang up. They call a third time, and they get my wife on the phone. My wife says, I think you should at least show them the courtesy of visiting. I said, I don't know, I'll pray about it. Then she's watching Christian television one day, and I'm working out in the yard doing what men do, bringing in the lawn clippings, and... And she comes out and says, I was just watching uh, Pat Robertson on, it was CBN, Christian Broad is that the right one? And uh, she said, and he said, there's a young pastor who is trying to determine if God's will is for him to take this church, and I want to tell you that God wants you to take that church. And she walks out and says, I don't know, this sounds weird, I really felt like he was speaking to us. So, okay, I'll visit the church. So they fly us to Spokane. They take us out to dinner. They treat us so nice. They're friendly people. They look at me with such adoring expectations. I love the (laughs) tension. And I remember laying in bed that night in the dark, and I said to my wife, I feel terrible for coming here. We accepted their hospitality, let them pay for all this stuff, and tomorrow I'm just going to have to tell them it's not God's will. I mean, I, I went to, my wife said, yeah, that's, that's kind of tough. And we went to sleep. By noon the next day, I looked at her and she looked at me and said, we're supposed to move here. I said, oh, man, this ruins all my plans. There goes my pay raise. There goes my benefits. <laughs> what do I do with this house we just bought two months ago? I mean, you're sitting there going, what is this all about? So why am I here today? And the answer's really simple, because God made it so clear, this is my will. And it may seem to you like that would be easy, but what we were looking to is moving to a place where there was no real definition of what we were moving to. I wonder where my son got it. <laughs> but you just know that, and... It's suddenly when you begin to find yourself sharing your story, other people hear that, and not everybody, but other people start going, you know, that story resonates with my soul. That's what I want to experience in my life, and I want to walk through life and do life together with people who are hearing God in the same way, and suddenly you find God giving you causes to focus on together so that you bow down to Christ, you you begin to belong to a community, and you begin to have a cause that you can believe in, and your life is beginning to (laughs) move in a direction that you never would have imagined. That doesn't mean there aren't problems or barriers. There are three things that I find that often get in the way of of us really as believers experiencing this full unity of spirit that God wants. And I think the first one is just simply Satan himself. Satan is terrified of Christians moving in one heart and one mind and one purpose. Terrified by it. It absolutely just drives him demonic, you know? Because I just read that passage in Genesis 11. Basically says, if they all start speaking the same language nothing will be impossible to them. And in a way, that's what happens when God begins to call his people towards a community of believers, and they begin to focus on a the cause. There's a common language of the Spirit that they begin to hear. God begins to speak into everybody's life the same thing. So that when it came to launching this missionary enterprise of Paul and Barnabas Incorporated in Acts chapter 13, the elders of Antioch, it says they're fasting and they're praying, and the Holy Spirit falls down upon them. And what happens? They look at each other and say, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to send Paul and Barnabas to do this work. And they're all in agreement because everybody says, this is what God wants. This is His will. And they become supportive of it. And they begin to move in the same direction. Satan will do everything. He'll he'll bring confusion. I mean, 1 Corinthians 14.33, it says, God is not the author of confusion. One of the things I realized when I first read that was when things become confusing, it's not God who's doing it. And it may not be just my own addled brain. The reality is maybe the demons of darkness want to create all sorts of confusion. What's going on? What's happening? I don't understand. We don't like confusion. We like to have everything simple and clear. But when you begin to follow God, there are seasons where confusion is the order of the day. There are seasons where you say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I have no idea. I remember Elizabeth Elliott had a great testimony. I can't re- quote it quite exactly as she wrote it, but she said, uh, you know, it goes on this whole thing about the attributes of God. God is wonderful. God is great. God is loving. God is perfect. Blah, 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 all powerful. Blah, 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 blah. And then she comes to the end and she says, uh, this paragraph and says, but I never know what he's doing. And I thought, what honesty. I love it. Here, this great woman of God says, I never really know what he's doing. I never know what his next move is going to be. He's always surprising me. So that you've got to get to a place where you realize I'm not defined by clarity. I'm defined by God. I'm defined by Christ. And even if the world around me is raging and falling apart, it doesn't really matter because God has called me to follow him without concern of where that may lead. Satan loves to use accusation. Revelations 12.10, he's the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night. But maybe the most powerful tool he uses against us is just plain, simple fear. We have trouble being in community with other people because we're afraid of being open. We're afraid of being vulnerable. We're afraid of not being the one who's ultimately in control. It's interesting that uh, surveys that have been done find that uh, women tend to have more friends than men. Seven out of ten women said that they have a close personal friend with whom they can share the most intimate details of their life. Only one man in ten can say the same. Men are lonely. Men are isolated. Uh, uh, Men have trouble letting the walls down and being in transparent relationships more often than not it's men who don't want to be in community with other believers in fact it's so funny because you watch women interact and you know they start talking about all the personal details they want to know are you married do you have kids what their age where do they go to school where do you shop where do you da-da? and they just go on and on and on about all this stuff about their lives you know and and guys i mean it's we just have bubba moments you know it's huh yeah huh huh yeah yeah. Hey, hey, how about those mariners? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How about those sea? I mean, we 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 talk about anything but us. We talk about anything but us. How rare it is for men to have somebody saying, Can I just tell you what my greatest fears are, my deepest doubts? Can I tell you where my what my most of the, the biggest hurts that I have to live with and I battle against every day. Can I talk to you about the, the things that I'm attracted to that I'm not, I know I'm not supposed to? Rarely does a man have somebody like that in their life. And I don't believe that's God's will. Now, I get it. A lot of people aren't safe. A lot of people aren't safe. We don't, we don't want to advertise. But the problem is is we will strangle in our isolation. We'll choke to death in our isolation. We need to be around other people. And the fear of doing that paralyzes most people. When I was talking to my staff about, we were having this conversation about, you know, connect groups and the idea of people living in community and doing life together as Christians and what that looks like. And one of the things I asked them, I said, what is it that, makes you most resistant to be part of a community group or a, a connect group or something like that and it was interesting because everybody who's ever been in one had horror stories of having been in one quite honestly things that they experienced with well, this one was went wrong it started out okay and then it went this way and this thing happened and all these kind of dynamics and my concern was what is the response well we just dissolved that group and never did that again and what, what are we surprised? Are we surprised to discover that the guy in the, on the, across the room on the couch is a sinner? Maybe saved by grace. <laughs> and if he said, is, we know it's grace. But somehow God wants our life to be connected to him or to her in a way that can make a difference. You see, we, we, we have this comfort zone. I want to be in a community group with seven people uh, that are my best friends. We want to be five, six couples who just really have fun together and do everything together and hang together and life is a party together. And, and when I come to church, we're going to sit together. But has it ever occurred to you that God might actually want to inject somebody into your life that's going to make life a struggle, that's going to make it harder? Because that's where we grow, and that's where we glow with the grace of God when we say, God, this is a challenge. The second thing I think gets in our way is what the Scripture calls selfish ambition. We all have our private agenda, which is about me, and doesn't really have a lot of room for we. We don't mind if others are involved as long as they do exactly as we tell them. In fact, we even see it in verse 5 here, of the, the chapter. It says, the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. In other words, what it's saying is, because they weren't in charge, they didn't want to play along. Because they weren't in control, they didn't want to cooperate. And that's an interesting dynamic because, see, each of us struggle with our own personal agenda. We know what our perfect life looks like and we're struggling to see if we can craft it in some way with what resources we can cobble together. But James gave a very scary warning in James 3.16. He said, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. When selfishness enters into the equation, community dissolves. Now, that shouldn't surprise any of us. But the thing that destroys the sense of community is when I become concerned with my welfare more than I do about the welfare of the community of believers I'm part of. Because he goes on in 2 Corinthians 12 to talk about the the fruit of selfish ambition. He says, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder or literally confusion? I think the answer really is to understand how Paul saw himself. How did Paul see his own identity? Well, he tells us very clearly in the opening of two or three of his letters to the churches, particularly Romans 1.1. He opens up and he says, Here, here's who I am. I am Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, appointed by God to be an apostle. The order of that statement is so telling because his name had been Saul, which means asked for by God. But he changed his name to Paul, which meant little, insignificant, small. That's who I am. I'm a small man. And then he said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. That's what I am. And because I submitted to him and bowed my life before him, he appointed me to be an apostle. Now, you see, if I had been written writing that, I would have started, Ken, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I tend to be available for whatever God wants as a slave once in a while, if it fits into my agenda and works out the way I planned. But Paul understood who he was. I am first and foremost a slave of Jesus Christ. And I happen to be an apostle because that's what he appointed me to be in the same way that I can look at myself today and say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ who was appointed by God to pastor a church in Spokane, Washington for the last 32 years. But that's all. There's something about that that destroys that selfish ambition when you realize that what I'm really about, and that's the thing about slaves. Slaves don't set their hours. Slaves don't set their pay. Slaves don't set their working conditions. And yet we live in an age where people want to dictate, I need this much money, I'll I'll work under these conditions and these circumstances, these hours, and I'll do this. Slaves don't have that right. Slaves are simply responsible to be responsive to the will of their master. But there's one third last thing that I think it it, uh, brings it more closely to home. Sometimes there's not unity in a church because there's simply a lack of clarity as to what the church is about. Where there is no clear vision, Proverbs 29 and 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Or literally, they, they scatter in confusion because they have no idea wh- what is going on. In 1 Corinthians 14, 8, he says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So ancient armies used trumpeters to give different signals with the trumpet in order to indicate different things. And they could know how to respond to the battle based upon the signal that was sent. In fact, even Nehemiah does this. That when they are under threat of attack as they're building, he tells them the tool in one hand, the weapon in the other. And if you hear the blast of the trumpet, go to where you hear that, drop your tool and come running with your weapon because the enemy is attacking there was a clarity. He said, this is what it means when this happens, and we need to be able to do the same. So that when I sit back and I say, okay, as I look back over the history of the church and I say, well, what is this church really about? What is our purpose? Well, <laughs> up till about five years ago, I would have said, the purpose of this church is to teach the Bible God's Word. That's what we do. Now, that's a noble thing. I certainly... <laughs> I could do that all day. But one of the things I came to realize is that I has a tendency to create what Alan Redpath referred to as "dead orthodoxy." Orthodoxy means you have the faith, the principle of faith down, you got all the details, you know exactly what you're supposed to believe. You check all the right boxes, get the true falses all right, and the multiple choices correct, because you know your theology, but it's dead because it never translates into anything. It never ends up having any action point in their life. And one of the things I came to realize after many years was I could preach the the, the clearest, profoundest, most significant message possible. And 10% of those people would go, I get it, and I'm going to go out and apply it. The other 90% saying, I agree with it, I get it, I have no idea how to incorporate that into my life. Because most of us understand how to live the Christian life by living with other people who are living the Christian life. If you think about it for a moment, your behavioral changes as a follower of Jesus have most often come because another Christian began to bring you into, I hate to use this word, accountability relationship. But in a way, it's true that somebody began to speak things into your life and explain to you how this works. More lives have been changed across kitchen tables than have ever been changed from pulpits. When somebody sits down and says, this is what this means, this is how this applies, this is how you put this into practice. And when community doesn't exist, the chances of that happening go way down. That some people get lucky and have other people influence them one way or another. But a lot of people just walk away after a while saying, I don't, it's not that I don't agree with it, I just don't know how to live it. And that's why we decided we need to really become really clear in what we're trying to accomplish. And it came down to this that basically, when you walked into this building today, you saw in bright lights in the front of the building, Jesus loves Spokane. Why does this church exist? Because Jesus loves Spokane. And because we love Jesus, we love Spokane. Not because Spokane is better than any other place, but Spokane happens to be the place that we're in. Hello. <laughs> Jesus loves Spokane, and he, he even loves Ritzville. He even loves Deer Park. He loves the uttermost ends of the world. But this is where we are. And if we aren't effective in saying Jesus loves Spokane to Spokane, then there's something disingenuous in saying it in Moscow or Berlin or Bangladesh. There's something disingenuous there. So that we have to say this is why we're here. This is what we're about. This isn't just something we put on there as a banner to get people to go, oh, isn't that nice? but it's a statement, an important statement, a defining statement. Jesus loves this city and he wants us to love it. And he wants us to love it in some very specific ways. He wants us to come up with ways or find ways to reach the unsaved. He wants us to Find the saved and get them connected in redemptive relationships with other Christians so that they can grow in those relationships with God first and then in learning how to love one another. And he wants us to equip those who are serving so that as they serve other people, they can become more effective in reaching the unsaved and connecting the saved together through the grace of God. Maybe another way of putting it and tying it into Nehemiah is I think that God wants us to build a a wall of faith around our city with gateways marked by grace. A wall of faith with gates of grace that basically says here is a place where you can escape the dangers and the death of this world and graciously experience the love of God and hopefully the love of his church. Because God loves you, Jesus loves you, and that you and I would do that with the intensity of Baruch of Zabai. I know I say that, and it rings a bell in your head like that, right? It's verse twenty, chapter three. It's the only one this reference is made. It's kind of an interesting thing; it just kind of pops out in the text. It says, and next to him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. Zealously, earnestly, carefully. In other words, it's a statement of intentionality and intensity. This guy was all in. And I, I just, I, I'm, I'm fascinated about this guy because I think, what was it that as Nehemiah is walking along the walls, surveying the work that's being done, that he stops and he looks at Baruch, the son of Zabai, and says, dang, that guy's into it. There's an intensity there. There's a seriousness. I keep on getting pictures of Jeff Ross in front of my eyes. <laughs> I mean, it's intense. And it was so intense that Nehemiah said, I've got to make a note. <laughs> I'm going to tell generations to come. I'm going to be telling people 2,500 years from now how this guy was totally in, totally sold out, totally committed to the project. He became an inspiration to other people because of his passion." That's the guy I want to be. That's the guy I would wish you would want to be. Not somebody who's just kind of going along to go along, but rather who has just become very passionate and clear, saying, I bow before Christ in humility, submission, and I say, Lord, your will be done. Place me where you want me to be. And surround me with a community that I can belong to, that accepts me. They they fully know me and they fully love me, warts and all. And let me be about whatever cause that you want me to be about, something that I can believe in with all of my heart, something that I can own and saying, I feel passionate about this. This is something that is life-giving to me. This is something that turns my crank. This is something I say, God, this is what I want to do. You see, for me, it's, that was defined a long time ago. I bowed down to Christ and I ended up here. I found myself belonging to a community of believers and I found myself being able to do something that is life-giving to me and that's talking about this book. And God has that same plan for you. <laughs> Not the exact thing necessarily, Maybe. Somebody's got to fill this pulpit someday when I'm senile and saying weird stuff, you know. Great John Newton, they had one day, 84 years of age, somebody had to come up and walk him off the stage because he'd, his mind was gone and he, they said, we can't just sit here and let him, you know, keep on saying this nonsense. My wife says that happened years ago, but I'm still, I'm still busy faking it. But God has this thing for you. Don't get stuck in mediocrity. Don't get stuck in safe places and the simple things and the staying where I am because that's what I know and I can control. Come to Him and say, Lord, here I am. You you have all of me. Whatever you want to do with that. I am your slave. I'm making myself, Paul, small. I'm willing to be your slave. Appoint me to what you have called me to be about, and I will do it. And then just tighten your seatbelt because you are in for a ride. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus all of the power and authority that your Holy Spirit would take these things that I've attempted to communicate and you would just begin to impress them into the, the deepest parts of who we are, Lord. Those parts that maybe we don't even know are there. And you would begin to expose us to your truth and to your will and to your passion in a way that would be transformational. That Lord, we could become Baruch of Zabai, the son of Zabai. We would become those those people who are zealous and earnest and vehement about what you've called them to be about. Because they know that's what you want. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters this morning. And I just ask God that you would just give them that passion that to be able to just say, Lord, I want to be all in. I don't want to be part way. I want to be all in. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that's what you want, would you just tell that to God by raising your hand right now? Not to tell me or anybody else, but just to simply say, God, I want to be that person who's all in. I don't want to be just kind of part in. I want to be all the way there. Because as you raise your hand, that's as if you're praying that directly to the throne of heaven and you're saying, God, here am I, Lord. Take me, use me. I want to be that person. I'm willing to be that person. Let me become that person. Surround me with a a community of people who have the same passion, with whom my soul is in harmony, Lord, and deliver to me a cause that I can believe in. God, do that work in us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we close and we worship together, we partake of the elements of communion together, never forget that every time you take these elements, that this is not just simply religion, it's not ritual. It is a way of responding to God by our physical movement. I mean, it's, it's, we objectively respond to God and say, God, here's my life. You gave your life, you gave everything, your body, your blood. You poured it all out for my redemption. And I now am responding in faith. I take these elements because I want to declare that I'm giving you all of me because you gave everything you were to save me.